Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll go down to the Catechism memory work. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? And then we'll go straight into the Bible memory work. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6, 4. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, feels so weird not to do the, the hymn of the day. Uh, so in that catechism memory work, uh, we are continuing on through baptism. And that the, the thing that Luther points out here that I think is maybe the main point to take away is that baptism is not just a one-time event in history, right? I, I think that there can be a mistake made where we say, oh, okay, I'm baptized, and that means that this thing happened to me when I was a baby or this thing happened to me when I was a teenager or even an adult or what I, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and it's in the past, right? Maybe there's a certificate on the wall. Maybe there's some pictures from an event, that's all good, but it's in the past. But Luther points out here 
that baptism, once we're baptized, it's a continual daily thing that lives that, that lives in us, that we live by. Um, so it indicates that the old Adam in us, by daily contrition and repentance, should be drowned and died with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Um, that daily we find ourselves in the passion of Jesus, in his cross, in his death, and in his resurrection. That uh, we remember our baptism daily, that we have been called by God, named by him, marked as his children, and that daily we kill the sin in us through those waters of baptism, and then daily we rise to live as new people of God. Uh, so, um, that I think that's the main thing to take away from, from that catechism memory work today. Any questions or thoughts on that? Right. I've never heard that. No. Yeah, the Bible talks about the God's right hand as the the hand of righteousness or His mighty right arm that saves. Um, I've never heard about it being shadow. Yeah. The other analogy the Bible uses for God for hiding in the shadow is uh, maybe what you're thinking of is that um, he's God is sometimes pictured as an eagle and we hide in his wings. Right. So we're we're hidden in the refuge of God's wings. So. Nope. Haven't heard of that. All right. So. What's up? All right. Yeah. When we kill all sins in us, that came to talk to me about how the dragon thing. Yeah, that that's a diff- different story. All right. Um, it's all connected. Yeah, it is. We at home we talk about killing the cranky danky dragon in us whenever we get cranky. So, all right. Um, so what we're gonna so we're still covering the prophets of Judah, and uh, the prophet that we're gonna look at today is one of the big ones, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, of course, is one of the major prophets, if not the most popular, or famous of the of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And oh, excuse me. Yeah, a little easier to find than Obadiah. Uh, you really just have to kind of flip your Bible open, and you can probably find it pretty easy. Okay, so um, we're going to try and cover 
Isaiah in 40 minutes. We'll see if we can or not. But if, if you uh, were here on Wednesday nights in Lent, uh, this last Lent, then hopefully a lot of this material will be familiar to you. That's what we covered in the midweek services as we preach through I or um, I preach through Isaiah this last Lent. So uh, hopefully some of this material is somewhat familiar to you. Unlike Obadiah and Joel that we've already covered, Isaiah we. On one hand, we know a lot more about him, at least in the sense of when and where he prophesies. So uh, we know, for instance, that – what am I looking for? Oh, um, if – I don't know if anyone has their I – don't, I don't know where one is. If anyone has those uh, Bible uh, history reference sheets uh, laying around on the chart, you can see – that Isaiah does not have a question mark by him. We know exactly when he dated, when he's dated, and that's because he tells us in the book, it was this year of this king that I prophesied under. So, um, and he, so even in the first verse, actually, Isaiah 1:1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we know it was during those four kings that he prophesied, um, and he'll tell us later it was in this year of this king that I was in the temple and I saw this. So we know what year, what kings, and that he was in not only just in Judah, but often in Jerusalem at the temple, right, at, at Solomon's temple. Um, and Isaiah 6 is the biggest uh event that takes place there where he sees he's revealed the glory of God with the seraphim and the cherubim and the holy 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 and all of that right so we'll we'll get to that um yeah so so we do know um and we also know that he's the son of Amos right other than that we don't know a lot about his personal life which is generally true of the prophets um Sometimes we know a little bit more. Sometimes the prophets are a little more personal, like Jonah, for instance. The whole book is kind of his life story, or Ezekiel is a little more like that too. Um, but Isaiah basically shows up. He's the son of Amos, whoever that is, and he uh, is inspired to write this this prophecy. Um, but he does the so the book and, and just kind of some general introduct, uh, introductory information. Um, is that this is the fifth longest book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Um, I think all the longest books are in the Old Testament. So uh, this is the fifth longest book of the Bible. And um, like I said, it really is probably the most popular of the prophetic books. Uh, both, I, I think you'll see this when we look at the key passages, that the, some of the key passages of Isaiah are some of the most familiar passages of the Bible. To you, right? So, um, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? That behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear, and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Uh, so we get some of those Christmas passages. Uh, I already mentioned Isaiah six, uh, where um, the he said, "Well, what was me? For I am a man of unclean lips, and the 
uh, cherubim come and touch his lips with the burning coal, and they sing, holy, 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 and right. Um, What else do we got? Oh, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the lamb goes uncomplaining forth, right? Uh, All of these um, big passages are from Isaiah. And so he is a beautiful prophet, a beautiful writer, right? He that the the writings that he writes, um, I mean, of course, there is something beautiful about Obadiah as well, but it's not quite as beautiful as Isaiah. Um, that that's the nature of having lots of different books and authors of, of Holy Scripture is that uh, there is different styles and the style of Isaiah is memorable and the style of Isaiah is something that seems to stick with us. So um, for this reason, I believe it was Luther that called Isaiah the, the fifth gospel, right? So you have, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament as the four gospels. Um, I, I think it was Luther who said, Isaiah is basically the fifth gospel, right? <laughs> that even though it's this Old Testament prophecy, um, it is so clearly about Christ and the Messiah and the account of what he's going to do that it can be considered really this fifth gospel. Um, so very, and that's a, and that really elevates it in a way too. I mean, we've talked about this liturgically recently in Lutheranism 101 that while of course all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is scripture, that the gospels are the center of the Bible, right? That the the account of Jesus Christ, uh, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ, tie everything together. Um, that it's the the heart and center of the scriptures. That the prof the uh, the Old Testament is looking forward to the Gospels, and the New Testament epistles are looking back to the Gospels. And um, that's why in church we like stand for the Gospel reading, right? So. It's not that they're more Bible than the, uh, the rest of the Bible, but they are the heart and center of the Bible in this way. And so to, when Luther calls Isaiah the fifth gospel, he's saying this is, this is a really important book, right? Um, and if, you know, if we're going to be Christians in the Christian church, this is a book we do well to pay attention to, right? Of course, we should pay attention to all of Scripture, but, but Isaiah is one of those books that's like, you really gotta. It's it's worth paying atten- extra attention to. Oh yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. And I, it, you know, I'm I'm obviously not trying to downplay other books. And I and I love, you know, I'm I'm just using Obadiah as a I'm using Obadiah as a foil because uh, that's what we talked about last last week. But um, there's not a lot of hymns made up of words. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just not exactly on the same level, right? Right. All right. So that's kind of uh, who Isaiah is and some general introductory material, um, and when and where he prophesies. Uh, so let's talk about um, some of the main themes of Isaiah. And we're just going to take a 10,000-foot view of the book. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at some of the themes. We're going to give a brief outline, 
and uh, then we're going to look at some of the key passages. We'll see how fast we can can do this. Um, I think one of the reasons that especially Lutherans love the book of Isaiah is because there is this sense of a law-gospel dichotomy going on within the book. That um, the book very much reads, like probably a lot of Lutheran sermons you've heard, where Isaiah is going back and forth and balancing this condemnation, this judgment, this heavy preaching of the law, and the amazing gospel promises that are going to come from the Messiah. And uh, another way to say that, right, instead of law and gospel, um, but you could say it a lot of ways, really, is the – and the ones that I I think I see most clearly in the book would be like judgment and hope. Yeah, justice and vindication. That's a, that's another one. Uh, rebellion and forgiveness is another one I wrote down. Um, but very strongly in the book, throughout the book, you're going to have clear condemnations of sin, and then followed by these very clear promises of salvation. And how the first one is going to lead to repentance is going to lead to. Uh, the the last one to the salvation to the hope and so um, that's one of the big things I th- I think that you're gonna see in the book and and you'll see that in some of the clear passages and also you'll see that just really in the outline of the whole book so it's got it, it's um, one of the reasons that it's beautiful is the way that it's structured is that uh, within each section you have you'll have judgment and hope but then if you zoom out um the entire book is kind of structured that way that the first 39 chapters are this overarching judgment in this kind of pre-captivity of judah and then the last uh chapters going from 40 to 66 are this kind of post-captivity hope so you have it uh, kind of within each chapter, and there, so there's layers, right? There's layers to the book, which is, uh, again, we'll see that in the outline, which I think is very nice. Um, an, another one of the big themes you'll see, which which goes along with this, is, um, and like I just kind of gave away with some of that outline, is a, um, not necessarily judgment hope, but this idea of old and new, that the old Judah is this Judah that has failed. The old Jerusalem is this Jerusalem that's failed. The old kingdom is this kingdom that's failed or is failing. But there is a new kingdom coming. There's a new king coming. There's a new Christ coming. The Christ is coming. And in this new kingdom, in this new Jerusalem, uh, this as he'll really hammer home, in at the very end of the book, in this new heavens and this new earth, everything is going to be made right. Everything's going to be made new, um, and it's and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be perfect. Okay, 
So, um, and that, that contrast of the old and new, um, it is, it, in this sense, it is kind of political, is that it, it is a major contrast. I, the word that comes to mind, as I just said, is, is really kingdoms. It's this contrast of kingdoms, that the kingdom of Judah, right? And this is why we spent so long on all the kings of Judah, that this kingdom of Judah has come to this complete failure, and it will come to a complete failure. Um, and we actually, right in the middle of the book, in uh, chapters um, 38 and 39, especially 39, uh, we get this focus on Hezekiah as this kind of example of a king that looked like he was going to be a good king and then totally and miserably failed. So, um, but then there's a better kingdom coming, right? The kingdom of Christ, right? And if you think about um, Isaiah 9, for instance, when we get that that Christmas prophecy, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and what, what does it say? The government will be upon his shoulders, right? Um, and it, of the and uh, this is Isaiah 9 verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forevermore. So um, it is. The language is almost political in this sense. Um, yeah, or military type language too. All right. Uh, so, so the old is this wickedness of Judah, and the judgment is this wickedness of Judah. Um, it's also worth noting, by the way, that we're, when we're looking at the, the the law and the judgment, in the old, that it's it's on Judah primarily, right? Um, primarily, but. Uh, more more broadly, it's it's also reaching out to the other nations. Um, so we'll actually see this in the outline that in chapter. So primarily, it's focused on Judah, and it's going to start with Judah, and then um, when we get into chapters like 38 and 39, looking at Hezekiah, it's going to end with Judah, but. Throughout the first 39 chapters, there's going to be judgments on almost every one of the other nations as well, on all of the other surrounding nations, because they're not they're not free from the condemnation of God either. Um, they're they're still under God's law and God's judgment, and so if you um, just kind of Look, for instance, where where does that section start? That would be in 13, around 13, I believe. That So you get a proclamation against Babylon. Um, you get a proclamation. So you get proclamation against Moab in 15. Yeah, Syria, Israel, 18 is Ethiopia, 19 is Egypt, um, 
20 is Egypt and Ethiopia. 21 again is Babylon and, and Edom. We talked about Edom with Obadiah, right? Um, and Arabia. Okay, and then Jerusalem's thrown in there. So it, he kind of bounces around. 23 is Tyre. Um, so the other nations are, are largely included in, this, in these judgment prophecies, right? Because what's Judah's main sin is idolatry. Well, what are they making idols out of? The other nations' gods, right? They're, they're going out into the world around them, and they're taking other gods from these other nations. And so those other nations are pagan, right? Yeah. By and large, they're, they're pagan nations that uh, need to be called to repentance and need to be told who the true God is, right? What? Just put God first and everything else is that. Yeah, and I, and I think you can also see in that, by the way, the um, one of the things you can see in Isaiah especially is the foretelling of the Gentile mission. Gentile is a word for nations, right? Uh, it, um, the word in Greek for Gentile is ethnos. It's just the other ethnicities, right? The non-Jews and the, the other nations. And if we think about the other nations falling under the law and judgment of God, then what also falls for the other nations? The hope, right? And when you look at the, some of these promises of hope, um, how much more broad are they? They're not just for Judah and Jerusalem, but the new heavens and the new earth is the whole heavens and earth, right? The, the, the promise of the, of, of the increase of his government, there will be no end, right? So the promises of the gospel of Christ that are going to come, those extend not just to the Israelites, not just to the Jews, not just to Judah, but to the whole world, right? So this is the this is the Gentile this is um partly the Gentile mission foretold, okay. Uh, I already kind of talked about failure and perfection. One of the things that you'll see in Isaiah is, but I'll, I'll go ahead and write it down. Is the failure of man, especially, like I said in 39, for instance, Hezekiah, um, who looks like he could be good, and then all of a sudden he's, he's not. Um, but the, instead, the perfection of the Christ uh, who's, who's coming, and the perfection of God uh, in general, right? So like in, in Isaiah 6, when you get this glory of God, this holy, 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 right? you can see his perfection. And so one of the things that we get is this it's again it's kind of a book of contrasts. Um, you get this contrast of the failure of man or the um, the inability of man to save himself uh, his yeah especially his inability and then the perfection of God or the ability of God to make all things right. And then uh, finally the the one other theme I wanted to point out, um, is the humility of Christ. That this Messiah who's coming, um, when you look at him, he does not 
necessarily look like what you'd expect. So for one, if you think about um, seven and nine, he's going to be born a little baby. And then especially in uh, like around 53, he is the suffering servant, um, which we'll talk about specifically in 53 and what, what that looks like. But that he he's stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He's not um, this when when we when we've kind of described what we've already described that this this perfect king is going to come and establish this government forever. You would think of him as you know riding in on this glorious stallion, taking his throne and and ruling with an iron fist and and uh, you know being arrayed in gold. That's not what Jesus looks like. And it's not what he looks like when he when he comes in in the incarnation either, right? He does come as a baby, and he does come as the suffering servant. Um, and uh, we'll talk about this just a little bit in the sermon today. But the the cross uh, looks like foolishness to the to the pagans, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews, right? It it does the cross does not look like a throne, but it is. And that's how God deemed it to be. Um, so we see that as well. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, the king yesterday. On one side of the like it was symbolic Lucifer, and the other side of the state, like father and son, and then Jesus in the middle. And Satan he said no, and Lucifer said yes. Um, I'm not familiar with that. I I think in the Bible Satan and Lucifer are the same. So, uh, the let's let's move on to the outline. So there, let me give you a a, a major outline and a, a more minor outline. Um, the major outline is pretty easy. I've already referenced it a number of times. Uh, One through thirty-nine, and then forty through sixty-six. So basically split in half, kind of um, bigger bigger first section. And uh, 1 through 39, um, we're going to call this the pre-captivity. So he's speaking basically in the time that he writes. Um, he's speaking to these kings that he's uh, prophesying during the time of, right? So he prophesies to Hezekiah about Hezekiah. Um, so this is kind of real time. And uh, this is primarily going to be the section on judgment but of course there's going to be gospel in there right now some of our favorite passages are in fact the gospel passages from the early section right so um, we've already talked a lot about seven and nine also one right your sins will be made uh how does that go um though they be like scarlet they will be made white as snow right or something something like that um Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, uh, purge away. Uh, where is that? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, verse verse 18. Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Right? Um, so that's from chapter 1. Uh, anyway, so that it's 
overall judgment, and especially if you look at like 13 through 35, it's like a lot of judgment, right? Which, interestingly to me, I think I made this point whenever I was preaching on this, this Lent, um, we never really read 13 through 35 in Isaiah, right? Um, it's never in the lectionary. Uh, so most of these passages show up in the lectionary because they're just famous and glorious passages. But interestingly, chapters 13 through 35 really don't get a lot of attention, which um, maybe that maybe we should uh, give give the judgments a little more attention. I don't know. But anyway, and then uh, 40 through 66, we're going to call this post-captivity. So this is Isaiah prophesying in the future, right? Because all of a sudden you get this huge time shift in chapter 40 where in, in 39, he's talking to Hezekiah, and in 40, he's now um, – he's, he's even – he's skipped over the Babylonian captivity entirely. He's preaching about – excuse me – the return from captivity, um, and as if the return from captivity has already happened. So um, you get this uh, – very big time warp in Isaiah, and of course, what do the uh, what do the liberal Bible scholars want to say with that? They want to say that well, at least two people wrote Isaiah because there's no way that Isaiah could have prophesied in the future like that, right? So, but um, that's silly because that's exactly what prophecy is. So, um, but and it goes it goes to show, of course, that. It wasn't just Isaiah that wrote Isaiah. It was the Holy Spirit that wrote Isaiah, right? Um, working through Isaiah. So, um, but we believe, for the record, in case you ever go and read any commentaries and people are saying weird things, uh, we believe that there's only one Isaiah and that he wrote the whole book. <laughs> um, goes without saying. But anyway, um, and this is also um, because it is, in some sense, the return from captivity. Right, this is going to also be the major hope section of the book. Right, it starts out the first uh, thing in chapter 40. Right, comfort, comfort ye my people. Uh, speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Yeah, so we get this hope section, and then uh, it's not all. Um, it doesn't all sound extremely hopeful, especially when we hear about the way that this hope is going to be accomplished with the uh, suffering servant um, being beaten and stricken and smitten. But uh, there, that is the way that hope will come. And then, of course, he's going to transport us not just to the return from captivity and not just to Jesus' death and resurrection, but he's actually going to transport us all the way until to the day when Jesus comes back again. When he talks about the new heaven and the new earth, right? And so um, Isaiah is beautiful in this way as well, that um, in some ways Isaiah goes from Genesis to Revelation in his prophecy. Okay, let me give you the minor outline now. Or the more, let's say, more detailed outline. Um, so 1 through 12 is going to be the kind of intro, right? So we're going to get a lot of introductory information, Isaiah, son of Amos, 
Isaiah was called in this way in Isaiah 6, right? Um, and the other thing we're going to get in this is uh, the first messianic prophecies. So, um, again, I'm, I'm going to keep pointing out the same passages because um, I want to focus – I want to be able to give you a 10,000-foot view, so I have to pick certain passages. But like 7, seven and 9, right, uh, the virgin shall conceive and, and unto us a child is born. Um, you're going to get the introduction because, I mean, I think, I think the whole Bible is Christological, but Isaiah especially is very focused on the coming Messiah, right? He's – there are a lot of direct messianic prophecies. And so um, where those occur is, is obviously important. All right. Um, 13 through 35, I kind of already mentioned this. Uh, this is the, the judgments for the nations. Um, it's basically a litany of judgment against all the different nations, including Judah. Um, then 36 through 39, we're going to call this Assyria to Babylon. So if you remember, as we've kind of gone through Old Testament history, that um, the major competing kingdom of the ancient Near East to start out with well, in the early Old Testament, it's Egypt, right? But then the kingdom that really takes over is Assyria, and Israel, the northern kingdom, goes captive to Assyria, if you remember way back when when we talked about that. Um, but Judah successfully does not fall prey to Assyria, right? Judah successfully uh, does not make a deal with the devil, so to speak, and uh, become captive to, to Assyria. They're able to, to retain their independence. However, Babylon, as the Babylonian Empire takes over from the Assyrian Empire, um, and then if you keep on going through history, what's the next big empire that's going to take over from Babylon? The Persian Empire, right? Um, but Babylon, uh, they do not successfully retain their independence, right? Babylon is the, the empire that takes Judah captive. And so this journey from Assyria, when Judah was actually doing okay, to Babylon, when they're not doing okay anymore, uh, this kind of covers that transition, right? Um and this is the story that that Isaiah tells about Isaiah or about Hezekiah that Isaiah tells about Hezekiah is that Hezekiah successfully dealt with dip, diplomatically dealt with Assyria but then he just fell prey to Babylon okay um, and then then with with that we're also just going to say this is the kind of story of Hezekiah here um, in in 36 through through 39. Okay. Uh, 40 through 48, 
is the story of deliverance of this this is the story of the return to captivity in prophetic form um and then uh 49 through let's see yeah 49 through 55 we're gonna hear about the servant and the servant of course is um isaiah's favorite name for christ uh the servant uh the servant of god right and what does jesus say when he comes to earth i did not come to be served but to serve right so so christ christ is the ultimate servant of god or slave even if you if you will and then finally 56 through 66 um is uh we'll just call it god's kingdom but it's these it's the new heaven and the new earth okay any questions on the outline of the book Um, you're testing my knowledge. I gotta see exactly what's. Oh yeah, this is buy wine and milk without money or price. Um, so this is fifty-five is um, part of the description um, as the the servant has come. Um, the part of the description of this nation or this this kingdom uh, where there's going to be abundant life and where things are going to prosper, right? So basically, like, the, the economy is amazing, <laughs> okay? So um, unlike our economy currently where inflation is insane – um, in this economy of abundant life, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Uh, and it, it's in in some sense this utopia, right, where the kingdom of Christ is just in every way, and where we don't have to re- worry about. Um, we don't have to worry about the daily needs of life, right? Because we can so clearly receive them from from Christ our King, um, and He is so merciful that He will just give us everything that we that we need. And life is abundant, and and justice is served, and um, there's joy and peace and and perfection, um, and the creation itself is singing out with joy, right? The the trees of the field clap their hands. So, um, yeah, 55 is great. I, I love 55. Um, yeah, there you go. All right. So let's look at a couple key passages. We probably have to finish this up next week. Yeah. Do we know how Isaiah died? If it was natural, because him, you know, talking to all these other nations, he's probably on the assassination. Yeah, probably. Uh, he's probably on the FBI watch list for domestic terrorism, um, as many of us probably are. But 
No, I don't. I don't recall. I'm. I can look look it up to see if there's any consideration about that, but I. I don't recall anything off the top of my head. Yeah, right. Um. So let's um let's look at the first one. We got three or four minutes, so we'll do the first one. Uh, the first one's gonna be one one ten through eighteen. So I'll just I'll read this and then I'll say a few things about it. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. And uh, I'll just read through 20. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, so a couple things here. Um, one is that he calls Judah Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Which Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Old Testament after Genesis 18 is kind of this representation of um, debauchery or absolute wickedness that a place not only is sinful, right? Um, that Because biblically, we're all sinful. We all struggle with sin. But we're not all called Sodom and Gomorrah, right? <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah is is this especially wicked place that has been completely overrun with sin. Um, and he uh, calls Judah, you rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah, right? So uh, he's saying you're not in a good place. And uh, then he goes on and, and continues to basically uh, lambast them for Pharisaism, right? I don't need... I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, right? Your new moons and Sabbaths and calling of assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity and the sacred meeting, right? Um, my soul hates this. So this is God speaking to them that basically what they're doing is they're continuing to kind of outwardly practice uh, the Mosaic law, but inwardly or even outwardly in this case, while they're doing that, they're also worshiping at other shrines. They're worshiping at other temples. Uh, inwardly, they're they're wicked, right? They're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Um, so on one hand, it's like, like the, it's it's probably something like, well, on Tuesday I sacrificed my child to Molech, but I'm going to go to church on Sunday and take communion, right? That's that's kind of what's going on here, and so um, God is not very happy with that, right? Um, but then it changes in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Um, this is kind of like our, our the, the baptism um, passage that we talked about earlier today, that uh, as children of God, we are called to kill sin. To put it down underneath us, right, and to seek good. Um, and on one hand, that that kind of sounds like works righteousness, right? But it, that's not what's going on. Um, by the power of God, they're enabled to do these things, right? And then we hear that in verse 18. Um, and I think um, so. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. That's uh, one of those inter intertrinitarian dialogues we get in the Bible where God speaks in the plural about himself, right? So he's saying, God God the Father is talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he says, come now, let us reason together. Um, and then he proclaims this to the people, that there is a forgiveness for their sins. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Okay, so again, very strong condemnation in the law and judgment and a very strong gospel hope that's coming. Okay, so um, that's the first passage we'll look at. We'll, um, we'll, co we'll go back in, uh, to this next week and uh, look through the rest of the, the passages uh, next week, and then we'll move on to the next prophet. All right, any questions, comments, concerns, quandaries? All right, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your prophet Isaiah and for the prophecy that has been recorded for us. We pray that uh, you would teach us through these words inspired by the Holy Spirit that we may grow closer to you and grow in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our eternal King. We pray that you would bless our worship today together that you would open our hearts and minds to the preaching of your word and to the reception of your gifts. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.